So 1 Samuel uh, chapter 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing affairs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore be favourable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 men stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us, the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasting grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain, as she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there was David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. 
He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servants has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the, hand, in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sleep. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Ab Abigail went to Nabal, he was in, his, in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord, who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. And David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and I'm ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel and they both were his wives. But Saul had given his daughter Michal, David's wife, to Paltiel, son of Laish, who was from Galim. Great. Uh, thanks, Julie. Thanks for reading that. Uh, good morning, everyone. Morning, everyone at uh, home. Nice to have you with us as well. Uh, let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for this uh, chapter in David's life and help us to learn from it now. Uh, give us uh, concentration, ears to hear, 
and uh, hearts to receive, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, you're meant to start a good sermon with uh, some kind of anecdote or story. You might have noticed I don't normally bother. might say something about my sermons. But I've been working on a, an original story this week. I think you're going to like it. So there were these two guys who both needed a house. The first man made uh, a lot of effort to look for some rock to build his house on, and he got to work. It was a simple and humble house uh, when he'd finished, for he'd made the effort to build the house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose up, the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Let's call this guy Wisdom. The other guy put his effort into making his house look great. Uh, he had a fireman's pole to get downstairs and everything. Wouldn't you like that? Yeah. But he didn't take the time to find a rock for the foundation. He wanted his house now, and he wanted it his way and his way only. So he built his house on the sand. The rain came down. The streams rose up. The winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. And we'll call that guy Folly. Now, of course, this story isn't new to anyone, is it? Uh, in fact, as you begin to think through the Bible, not only is this story right there in it, it's actually reflected through most of the Bible. In fact, this contrast between wisdom and folly being applied to life. Proverbs that uh, dedicates much of, its, of the book to these two people, wisdom and folly. And in fact, uh, in our life, we're faced with often those two uh, basic options before us, aren't we? Wisdom or folly. So while the story may be old, the question is actually ever fresh. What are we going to choose, wisdom or folly? And that's the choice before David in this chapter today. Uh, he literally comes across a man whose name is Fool, and he has a wife who is wise. The question is, which is David going to choose, wisdom or folly? The rock or the sands. Uh, now, this chapter, uh, which we're going to go through the story, uh, begins with the announced death of Samuel, that great prophet who we've got to know at the beginning of 1 Samuel. It's the end of an era, quite literally. Uh, the last ruling prophet of Israel has died, and Israel is now firmly in the hands of its king instead. Now, given the rather mixed but mostly kind of taking nature of King Saul that we've seen through this book, it's not surprising that all of Israel uh, turned up at Samuel's funeral in verse 1. Uh, there's kind of likely a national kind of anxiety about what will happen now. Uh, but our narrative uh, doesn't follow the funeral, it follows David. You see, while in the last chapter, David spared the life of Saul, and if you remember, or if you are here, uh, it, when he was in the cave in chapter 24, uh, Saul even acknowledged to David that he'd shown him mercy and that one day God would put David on the throne. Uh, but David returned to his stronghold. Clearly, Saul is not finished with him. And as we'll see in the next chapter, Saul is still after, uh, out to get him. Saul is not yet finished with David. And so the death of Samuel perhaps causes David to, to move even further away from Saul. And we meet him here, he heading down into the desert of Paran. And this is where he meets wisdom and folly. So have a look at verse 2, chapter 25, verse 2. A certain man in Moab, uh, Mara, Mo, I 
Moen, I've been practicing that word all week, who had property there at Carmel, not an American caramel, just Carmel, uh, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats, 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing at Carmel. His name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. This guy, Nabal, he's seriously wealthy. 4,000 goats and sheep is a huge number by anyone's standards in any time or period of history. He lived like and enjoyed being like, as we find out later in verse 36, a king. And that's what he thought of himself in his life. But he also lives up to his namesake. Have a look down to the middle of verse 25. Uh, his wife, his doting wife, is describing him here lovingly to David. He's just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes before him. The fact of this and the facts of this chapter are kind of revealed later on if we read through the story. Uh, but basically, David and his 600 desperate men have been protecting Nabal's 4,000 animals whenever they've been near them and grazing out in the wilderness in the hills. Uh, most of you know that uh, Leanna and I uh, spent three years leading a team of missionaries who lived among herd boys in the Susu. Uh, the deal we made was that with them was that if they taught our guys to be shepherds, we'd teach them about Jesus. Uh, many of you will have met or heard interviews with Caleb, no relation to the Calebites in this story. Uh, and our team would sometimes be left with perhaps 80 or 100 sheep and goats in the mountains to keep an eye on, uh, to protect them from jackals and thieves and um, dangerous precipices and flooded rivers. They'd have to find enough grazing for them and enough water for them to drink. They'd have to bind up their injuries and perhaps carry the weak ones if they couldn't make it back to the, um, to, to the overnight stay. Let alone, they had to look after themselves and feed themselves and try and get some sleep. And at shearing time, they might gather two or three of these flocks together and work with other herd boys to drive down two or three hundred of these stupid animals down to get sheared. Uh, now, throughout the year, however diligent or careful the shepherds, the herd boys, our team, anyone was, some sheep or goats would die. Uh, they'd be stolen. They'd just get lost. And, that, and we're just talking sort of 60, 80, 100 animals. And so the herd boys in Lesotho were only too happy when our guy said, can we come and live and work with you? Because life was tough. It was dangerous at times. It was lonely and two or three extra guys around would really help protecting and looking after the sheep, which if they lost, would come out of their pay packet, as it were. Now, relay that all over to this guy, Nabal, whose herd boys were keeping watch over 4,000 sheep and goats in a region with much bigger predators than jackals. We know from David's life that he had to fight off uh, lions even from these animals. It's not just 200 animals, but 4,000. Now, if a group of 600 men led by the great warrior David turned up and took it upon themselves to protect you and your uh, 4,000 animals so that none were lost, repeated twice, not one went missing when David and his men were there, yet it kind of felt like they'd earned a little bit of the spoils, wouldn't you? that the difference they'd made to the wealth of this guy, Nabal, uh, in protecting their, his herd boys and the sheep 
you'd expect him to be a little bit grateful at least and maybe give him a little bit, particularly considering it's uh, shearing time and he's about to make a lot of money from all the, uh, all the wool. So have a look at verse 16. Uh, this is what they were doing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now, even when I or one of our team in Lesotho went to one of the stock owners' uh, houses or villages, we'd be welcomed and fed and, and treated well. So what does Nabal say as he comes out to Carmel to see his wealth and he meets David's servant who approaches him with a request with just, you know, what, what can you spare? Something for David and his men who have treated you so well. Verse 10, Nabal answered David's servant, servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. <laughs> what, what do I care? I've got what I want. I don't need to do anything. Notice he even uses the name son of Jesse, which King Saul was doing in previous chapters to kind of minimize how David's importance. Uh, he even pretend, who is he? I don't know who this guy is. And I mean, clearly he does because his wife knows absolutely everything about David as she goes to talk to him later, as we'll see. But the fool, Nabal, offers a foolish response. By any cultural or moral standard, this was not the right response. So the news gets back to David, and David's not happy. Have a look at verse 12. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, right, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his, uh, on his as well, uh, probably still the sword of Goliath. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Revenge is sweet, as they say, and David's going to have it, isn't he? This guy's not going to get away with it. He's so mad, he even vows before God that not one man in Nabal's company will be left alive by morning. It's the type of reaction that you and I have when people treat us badly, isn't it? And uh, we probably don't grab our swords and go out ready to kill everyone in sight. But we'd certainly cut people to pieces with our tongues, wouldn't we? sometimes to their faces, more often behind their backs. We perhaps even fight fire with fire. We deliberately make decisions to make their life a bit difficult because they're making our lives a little bit difficult. We look to annoy them as they've annoyed us. Now, of course, we are mostly of us English and we'll do this so subtly, no one will probably notice. But in our hearts, we are cutting people down with our tongues and our minds and our hearts. Behind the kind of mask of polite English character, there is revenge and hatred and anger at others who haven't treated us as we would have liked them to or how they, we think they should have, or as we feel we've treated them. What, uh, and we seem to think that revenge is right. But what then we all need is a bit what, like what David needs. Before he has unnecessary blood on his hands, he bumps into wisdom. Now they say opposites attract. That certainly seems to have been the case here. Verse three again, his name was Nabal, his wife was Abigail. She was intelligent and beautiful. Her husband was surly and mean. Uh, Nabal's done well for himself as have I, of course, uh, in securing a beautiful and intelligent wife, all in one. 
And so this impressive woman, hearing what her foolish husband has done, try not to look at anyone in particular, uh, takes things into her own hands to try and sort this out. And she swings into action. Verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Not only is she intelligent and beautiful, and this is perhaps where Liana falls down, she's a great cook as well. She can prepare a massive feast instantly and quickly. Uh, so she sets off to find David, verse 24. Uh, she fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, fool. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes before him. And as for me, your servant, I did not even see, uh, see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal, a fool. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Here in that little speech, and I've gone through it again deliberately, we see Abigail's wisdom. It is in calling others, and presumably herself, to, be, to being responsive, responsive and obedient to the word of God. She recalls the, the Song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32, where the Lord says to Moses, or sorry, Moses is singing of the Lord, and this is what the Lord says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. See those words reflected in the words she gives to David, before you avenge yourself, before you bring out blood and, and you don't leave it to the Lord. Uh, Paul in the New Testament echoes exactly that same uh, phrase in Romans 12, uh, 19, where he says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, here's the same verse, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Revenge is the Lord's job. Ours is, in fact, to love our enemy. Put your violent tongues, your violent hearts, your physical swords away. Uh, Abigail isn't finished with reminding David of God's command. She also reminds him of God's promises. Uh, have a look down to verse 28 in our chapter. Please forgive your servant's presumption, she says. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. It's, a, it's reminding him, she's reminding him of the promise. Because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, so she knows of Saul pursuing him, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, reminding him of God's promises that he will reign one day. Um, but the lives of your enemies will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. 
when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel. Reminding David of all the promises of God that he has given to him uh, and saying, so obey him. Don't take revenge into your own hands. That's the Lord's work. And so she concludes her wisdom in verse uh, 31 by showing David the wise way forward. Verse 31, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. In short, don't sin, obey God, for his promises are good. Basically what she said, isn't it? Don't sin, obey God, trust his promises, for they are good. So what will David do? He has the choice to follow the way of foolishness, to act like Nabal has, fight fire with fire, cut him down with his sword, or the way of wisdom, Nabal or Abigail, foolishness or wisdom, the rock or the sand. And David, man after God's own heart, chooses wisdom. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to you today to meet me. David chooses wisdom. He chooses obedience to God's word and promises. And so he should. He is the anointed one of God, a man after God's own heart, the king who will point us to Jesus. So what do we do when we're faced with our enemies or fools around us? Again, try not to look at anyone in particular. When we're faced with uh, selfishness and, and, and uh, evil, do we respond with selfishness and foolishness in return, as David wanted to? Or do we trust God, his promises, and do we obey and follow his wisdom? Well, our story is still going. Uh, Abigail returns to Nabal, who is drunk. Uh, once he sobers up in the morning, she tells him what she's done, and he suffers some kind of stroke or heart attack uh, and then dies from it at the hands of the Lord. That's very clear in the passage, uh, verse uh, uh, 10 days later. And in verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause. Remember, it's the Lord's uh, job to avenge. Who has up upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then he sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. Whoa, hang on, wait a minute. Things were going so well, weren't they? He's obeyed God, he's avoided sin, he's not take vengeance on his own, on his, on his self. And I thought David was already married. In fact, we're now told he's married twice already, and this will be his third wife. Uh, his wife, his first wife, Michal, uh, had to remain with Saul when they escaped. And probably as punishment, we, we learn here that Saul gave her to another man as his wife. But we also learn, verse 43, David also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both were his wives. It seems odd, doesn't it? That having chosen wisdom just previously, David now seems to choose folly when it comes to women. But perhaps in a chapter of wisdom and folly, this is exactly the point. 
even God's anointed, David, while a man after God's own heart, will also ultimately need a perfectly wise saviour who chooses wisdom every time. We all know where David's lack of restraint towards women eventually gets him later in life in 2 Samuel when he commits adultery with Bathsheba and then murders her husband to kind of cover it all up. And we too, if we're followers of Jesus, having had our hearts of stone replaced by a heart from God, we will not always choose wisdom, although we should. So we too still need a perfectly wise saviour. We absolutely strive to choose wisdom, not folly. To not, to, to not do so is to stand against God's will and commands. It, it is sin. It is foolishness, as we've learned in this chapter. It's to be like Nabal, to build a house on the sand. But when we do do that, when we fail, it leads us back to the mercy of Jesus, doesn't it? Who is perfectly wise and never failed to obey, unlike even David, the man after God's own heart. In his perfection, he gives us his righteousness in exchange for our foolishness, doesn't he? Perhaps in David's own words, Psalm 51, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he writes this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, we are saved by Jesus to be like Jesus, to choose wisdom, obedience to God's word, trusting in his promises. That's how we live. Obedience to God's word, trusting in his promises, the way of wisdom, building the house on the rock, as David did. And yet until Jesus returns, the very nature of us also choosing folly at times brings us back to that same joy of salvation, doesn't it? It's why we need the gospel every day. Of course, the ultimate folly in life is to reject Jesus in the first place, as Nabal has. He's rejected God's anointed entirely. And our only hope of rescue from God's right judgment uh, and a far worse fate that awaits even what Nabal uh, faced if we reject Jesus. But if we choose him, we choose life. So to close, folly is in this chapter and in our lives is driven by, we've seen it throughout this chapter, it's driven by selfish gain, pride, money, status, power, revenge, sexual desire. All of those things are the way of folly. But building a house on a rock, choosing wisdom, is to be driven by Jesus and his word. And that story that was so original to me that I started with, actually, Jesus introduces uh, in Matthew 7, 24, by saying this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, hear God's word, his promises, put them into practice, obey, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So tomorrow, when that annoying colleague or school friend or a teacher doesn't do exactly what our precious little Johnny uh, likes, 
will you draw the sword of the heart or the tongue? Or when you see an attractive woman or a man and you're tempted by, or you're tempted by the internet, will you engage in that fantasy? Well, well that's, that's folly. That's a rejection of Jesus. And so we repent and we know that we need Jesus again. But better still, we choose the way of wisdom, the way of Jesus, to love our enemies, to control our desires, to choose obedience to God's word and enjoy his promises. And so we read his word every morning instead of Facebook or doing a workout if it's got to be one or the other. We get ourselves and our, church and our families to church to hear God's word. That is to choose wisdom because we're exposing ourselves to the word of Jesus. So then when the rain came down and the streams rose up and the wind blew and beat against the house, it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you for your word that we find uh, in the scriptures. We thank you that it shows us wisdom every time. Help us to build our lives on you, our rock. Help us to obey and to enjoy your promises and to choose wisdom each and every time. And when we fail to do that, we praise you that like David, we can come before you and plead for mercy and we will find it because you are a God of grace and mercy. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is wisdom and fulfills it perfectly for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.